This is VLX number 118, Unix for the Kingdom. We are in Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. VLX stands for Video Lexio Divina, the only patristic Bible study and Ignatian prayer series online. God give you his peace and omni patris et spiritus sancti. Amen. God our Lord, we ask the grace that all of our intentions, actions, and operations be directed purely to the service and praise of your divine majesty. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Thus are the words of the Holy Gospel. So a giant thanks to my donors out there that make this possible to always do free for everyone who's listening. And for those doing the imaginative way of prayer, we will end today with a meditation directly from St. Ignatius of Loyola. Okay, so today we hear in Matthew 19, verse 10, the disciples say to Christ, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Well, what are they talking about? Well, exactly what we covered last time in VLX number 117, where Christ explains the absolute prohibition to divorce. So notice, um, this is so interesting. It's not just the Pharisees who have a problem with this. Even his disciples, it just said that right there. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Even the disciples look at the teaching we're going to hear, or rather the teaching we heard last time on how you can't divorce and say, well, if that's the case, no one should get married. Now, interestingly, this is actually the hinge between marriage, last VLX, and celibacy, which is today's VLX. You might remember a few of you, the old Baltimore Catechism, had a picture of a young girl getting married on the left and on the right. It was a similar girl choosing to enter the convent, and on the left it said marriage is good, and on the right it said, but this is better, celibacy is better. Now, obviously that's politically incorrect today, but that is the teaching of both the Bible and the Council of Trent that celibacy is greater than marriage. Oh, so you're saying marriage is bad? No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Listen to the the Baltimore Catechism again. Marriage is good, celibacy is better. Nobody said marriage is bad right there. Marriage is good. No one is denying that. 1 Corinthians 7 reads, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each of you has his own gift from God, one of, a, one, of one kind and one of another. Okay, so that was St. Paul. And remember, we discussed the word concession last time. It basically means if you can't take the high road, then better to succeed at the low road. If you can't take the high road, then better to succeed at the low road. And by the way, there was that line, do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time. It's just interesting to know historically that the Western churches in Lent used to have married couples refrain from relations, 
and some of the Eastern churches still do. I think that's probably more difficult for men nowadays because of just the constant barrage that eyes take. So it might not be a good idea for marital chastity to, to do again, but it is interesting to consider, if you can do it, refrain from a season. St. Paul continues a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 7, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, so that was St. Paul. And living without worries is a big part of celibacy today. But the main reason is that celibacy is victory and contemplation already on earth. So as you listen to St. Paul, did you notice he wasn't ripping on marriage? He just said celibacy is higher. Celibacy is higher. So this is what we have in the Baltimore Catechism. Marriage is good. Celibacy is greater. And I realize that's totally politically incorrect. Um, but I think the most underrated line on celibacy in the Bible comes from Christ himself. It's in uh, chapter 20 of St. Luke, verses 34 to 35. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. That was Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 35. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Now, did you ever think of celibacy as that glorious? We're going to talk about this a little bit later, actually right towards the end of this podcast, why people now see priests as the wimpiest people. But Christ's description right there was of something angelic, that celibacy is this um, cameo or bellwether of what it means to be an angel in the flesh in heaven. Notice I didn't just say angel. We obviously all get our bodies back in heaven or hell. But there's something angelic about the state of celibacy because if all of us, please God, make it to heaven, none of us, you guys listening and me who celibate, none of us will be having relations in heaven. We will all be celibate. So the celibate state, if the person's actually living it on earth, is already the state of the resurrection of the body. It's already the state, it's already an angelic state, but you do have your body. So there's something very glorious about that, Not, not wimpy. And we're going to hear later part of church history why people now sort of see priests as the wimpiest, but it really wasn't always that way. Now, obviously, Father Lapide, he's that Jesuit priest from the 16th century. And of course, the church fathers have some things to say about both marriage and celibacy. Now, as I read you these quotes, some of the women out there are going to be offended by these quotes, but Father Lapide, it's pretty rare for him just to have some fun, but he's, he's going to have a little fun in some of these quotes. So here's the big test to see if you're ill-affected by feminism. This is the question I want you to ask yourselves. Even, even good Catholics out there need to do this little litmus test on themselves. Do you allow women to joke about what it means to be a man, but not let men joke about what it means to be a woman? 
obviously this is extremely pronounced in sitcoms that everyone can make fun of men, but nobody can make fun of women. But even outside the sitcom world, I'm sure very few of you watch the sitcoms. Uh, let me say this again, and I think men need to ask themselves because there's just as many men who are affected about, by feminism as women. The question is, do you allow women to choke, to joke about what it means to be a man, but not let men joke about what it means to be a woman? And so you might be surprised to hear this, but true Catholic culture allows gentle teasing in both directions. Catholic culture allows some teasing in both directions. The only reason you might allow it only in one direction, that is women teasing men, is because you're a feminist and you don't know it. So let's listen to Father Lapide and the Church Fathers on verse 10 today. Um, he says, If a husband be so strictly bound to his wife that he cannot put her away for anything except fornication, but must live with her. Remember, this is, this is in reference to the last VLX. Though she be odious, quarrelsome, deformed, nasty, and so on, and must have close connection with her until death, it is better not to marry a wife. So this is the conclusion the disciples are coming to. Like, if I can't divorce when she becomes nasty, then better not to get married. For the Greek, gunasai applies both to men and women. But Father Lapide, as a man, is going to apply this to men. He says, it may be that the Vulgate, in translating it by nubare, allows to the servitude and subjection by which a man is bound to a woman, and not seldom, and this is where he gets a little bit funny here, if he wishes to have quietness, must give in to her, and bear patiently her foolishness, complaints, quarrels, and reproaches. Hence the comic poet says, I do not want to be married to my wife. St. Chrysostom gives the reason. It is easier to fight against concupiscence and ourselves than have a bad woman. The Gentiles realize this, hence Cato said, a wife is a necessary evil. <laughs> All right, that's not Cato from the OJ trial. That's an ancient uh, Greek or Roman guy. But actually, there's something very profound in St. John Chrysostom's line there. It's easier to fight against concupiscence and ourselves than against a bad woman. I have a telegram channel called Padre Peregrino, and I put that quote up on it a couple weeks ago, and I said, don't pity us straight celibate men as much as you might be tempted to. Why? Because it's easier to fight against concupiscence in ourselves than against a bad woman. And then Sir Thomas More, who is just canonized, uh, or at least just martyred right before Father Lapide wrote this, because he wrote this book around the year 1600, and um, St. Thomas More was just martyred and canonized. As you know, St. Thomas More was married, and Father Lapide points out that he suffered martyrdom under Henry VIII of England. St. Thomas More, being asked why he had married a little wife, replied jokingly, of evils I chose the least. So he married a little woman and said, of evils I chose the least. So he's just having some fun here. And people in most of Christian history could actually handle this. Okay, in verse 11, the ESV says, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Whereas the Dewey Rhymes Bible says, all men take not this word, but they to whom it is given. So that last verb, or whatever that is, participle given, is the same in the ESV and Dewey Rhymes, but that first verb is receive in the ESV, and it's take in the Dewey Rhymes. So let's look at that word. You know, um, does this mean God has given the gift of continence? And by the way, continence is that strength to refrain from marital relations. Does this mean, verse 11, does verse 11 mean God's given the gift of continence only to a few people ahead of time? almost like, you know, uh, the double predestination that we've discussed before. Did God give this gift of continence only to a few people ahead of time? Well, it is true St. Paul just talked about certain gifts given to people, but 
really, this is something that everyone has to be able to live with. I mean, imagine if a woman's husband went off to the Crusades in the 12th century, or um, even nowadays, imagine a, a woman's husband goes off to Iraq and gets paralyzed. Is she going to divorce him just because he comes back paralyzed? And I realize some people who are paralyzed can still have children after that. But let's look at the church fathers, because this line, um, or this verb, which is take, receive, what we're really going to see the church fathers interpret this is, is some people choose not to receive this high gift. Listen closely and keep in mind as I read this that a eunuch was someone who in ancient times was castrated as a boy to later take care of the queen so as to not be able to do anything immoral with her later in his life. And so this line again, all men take not this word. All the faithful have the gift of continence. In the first instance, they could practice continence if they wished. That is, if they would continuously beg from God the strength and grace to remain continent, and if they cooperate with that grace by guarding their eyes, by fleeing from sloth, mortifying the flesh, and so on. So notice right there, a lot of people today, they blame their circumstances why they can't be chased. And a lot of people also say, well, I asked God and he didn't give anything to me. But to use Father Richard Heilman's term, God's not a vending machine. Sometimes we have to do more than just like one Hail Mary for chastity. Sometimes it takes, um, you know, I've preached from the pulpit before, five decades a day to keep your hands clean, 15 decades a day to keep your mind clean. But notice what the church father said is the key to chastity for whether, whether we're talking about married or unmarried. It says here, guarding your eyes, fleeing from sloth, and mortifying the flesh. Notice this happens long before a fall. This is the key to chastity. Whether you're called a celibacy or marriage, you have, to, you have to have this as a preventative measure. And I love these three things. Guarding your eyes, fleeing from, from sloth, that's laziness, and mortifying the flesh. Thus says St. John Chrysostom. Father Lapide continues, For Christ here, together with St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, gives the counsel of continence, and remember a precept is a command and a counsel is a suggestion, gives the counsel of continence to every believer. So this is a high suggestion. This isn't just find your gift. It, it Again, it's the highest road, and then the concessionary road is marriage. For nothing is counseled or suggested except what is within man's free will and power with divine grace, which God truly offers and provides to anyone who asks it. It is otherwise with the gifts of prophecy, tongues, healing, and miracles. For the grace of these, God does not prepare an offer to everyone, but only to a few whom he chooses for the good, common good of the faithful. But St. Jerome says, it is given to those, talking about chastity, it is given to those who have been able, who have wished, who have labored that they may receive. That sounds a little bit weird, but that's a very beautiful line by St. Jerome. Yes, it's given to everyone who asks, but sometimes you got to ask hardcore. It is given to those who have been able, who have wished, who have labored that they may receive. Sometimes our prayer for difficult things, especially chastity in the 21st century, has to be a laborious, intense prayer. What is meant is that virginity is a gift of God, given to those who ask for it as they ought to ask. And then St. John Chrysostom says, reflect that if you were a eunuch, either by nature or by the wrongdoing of man, you would be deprived of these pleasures and would obtain no reward by being deprived of them. Give thanks, therefore, to God, because you will obtain great rewards and gleaming crowns if you live thus as they do without any rewards at all. Yes, indeed, you may do it much more easily, safely, and pleasantly than they can, 
both because you are strengthened by the hope of recompense and because you rejoice in the consciousness of your virtue and aren't tossed by such vast billows of desire. For the cutting off of a member is not like the bridle of reason. Yes, verily, it is reason alone which restrains such waves. For I should not say that this sting of desire proceeds from the brain or from the loins, but from a lascivious mind and from neglecting to watch over the thoughts. So what Father Lapide just explained there is, eunuchs who were castrated as boys, they might struggle with lust much later in life despite this. And so what he's saying is the celibate doesn't have to go through that pain. He gets to uh, not have that embarrassment and that pain or the pain younger in life and the embarrassment later in life, but he gets to live this life undividedly attention, with undivided attention to God. And yet it's, it's difficult, but the key to it isn't harming your body. Again, because eunuchs who have harmed bodies might have lustful thoughts. The key, he said, is to avoid the lascivious mind and to make sure that we watch over our thoughts. So notice that it's not excessive testosterone that makes it impossible for one to live as a celibate. This is the excuse that a lot of guys use today. Uh, is just like they have biological problems or something like that. Well, look at someone like St. John Brebuff. He was that uh, 19th, 17th or 18th, maybe 19th century Jesuit. Well, he was a mighty, mighty man killed by the Iroquois in New York State. One online description of this Jesuit's martyrdom says, Throughout the torture, Brebeuf was reported to have been more concerned for the fate of the other Jesuits and of the captive native converts than for himself. As part of the ritual, it's describing the ritual of his martyrdom, the Iroquois drank his blood and ate his heart as they wanted to absorb Brave. this is after he died, as they wanted to absorb Brebeuf's courage in enduring the pain. The Iroquois mocked baptism by boiling, pouring boiling water over his head. That was before he died. The main accounts of Brebeuf's death came from the Jesuit relations. Jesuit accounts of his torture emphasize his stoic nature and acceptance, claiming that he suffered silently without complaining. Now, it was either him or St. Isaac Jogue, his sidekick or assistant, who was really built, they say, like a linebacker. I think it was St. Brebuff. But in any case, probably no man out there can claim, especially with all the estrogen we drink and all the injections we receive as kids, none of us can say that we have higher testosterone than St. Brebeuf did on earth. Just Google him. This was a mighty bearded man. Now, granted, we have temptations. He didn't like the internet. But listen again to what St. John Chrysostom blames lack of chastity on. For I should not say that this sting of desire proceeds from the brain or from the loins, but from a lascivious mind and from neglecting to watch over your thoughts. So isn't that amazing? Lust doesn't come from your belt area. It doesn't even come from your brain originally. It comes from negligence on thoughts. That great saint and doctor of the church, St. John Chrysostom, says that initial sting of desire, and keep in mind this is just as true for women as it is men, that sting of desire really has nothing to do with your body being out of control as your decision to let in those initial bad thoughts. Not the, not the later ones where it's like obvious mortal sin, the initial bad thoughts are what have to be crushed if you want to live chastely. Okay, so let's listen to verse 12. And again, remember a eunuch was someone who in ancient times was castrated as a boy to later take care of the queen so as to not be able to do anything immoral with her. Verse 12, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs 
who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And here Father Lapide describes three, three types of eunuchs. The first, those who are such by nature. Two, those who have been made eunuchs artificially, who have been castrated so that they may guard queens and noble matrons from defilement. By the way, this is my thought real quick, Father Dave Nix here. I did think this is very interesting, number two. Um, if you look at the life of St. Maximin and Colby, he saw himself as a knight of the Holy Queen. So very beautiful to link celibacy as guarding the queen. And then number three refers to the line from Christ, those who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Father Lapidus says, Christ here alludes to Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 5, where the prophet foretells that such eunuchs would one day be Christ's subjects and promises them a name better than that of sons and daughters, yes, an everlasting name. And we hear about Origen. I'm sure most of you know that Origen could have been in category three of the eunuchs, but chose to make himself one of the castrati. And Father Lapide describes his life. He says, Origen took these words literally. For love of chastity, he actually mutilated himself and cut off his member. But he was wrong in doing so, both because such self-mutilation is unlawful and also because lust is not thereby quenched but inflamed. Listen again to St. John Chrysostom. When he says, have made themselves eunuchs, he does not speak of the cutting off of members, but of the suppression of evil thoughts. For he who mutilates himself renders himself liable to a curse. Neither is concupiscence thereby assuaged, but it is made more troublesome, end quote. And then Father Lapide points out that eunuchs sin in thought through, des through the desire of lust, grieving that they cannot fulfill it. So like I was saying earlier, it may not do you any good. Well, first of all, you shouldn't mutilate yourself. And secondly, if you did, it probably wouldn't even work if you're struggling with lust. Now, listen closely because a lot of people say, well, it's great priests are celibate because they wouldn't have the time to serve me with the sacraments if they weren't celibate. That's true, but it's not the main reason that we answer to follow Christ in celibacy. He says, falsely, therefore, do the heretics expound for the kingdom of heaven to mean for the sake of preaching, as though it meant there are some eunuchs who abstain from marriage that they may be more free to preach the gospel or that they may be free from the anxieties which mat matrimony brings with it. For continence, this is so key. Notice he just said, it's not so we have more time. Why have some of us chosen the pathway of celibacy? I love this line. Father Lapide says, For continence is to be praised and desired not only for such reasons, that is to preach the gospel, but precisely for its own sake. Because it is a great virtue and because the victory over himself by which a man overcomes lust raises his mind to meditate upon and follow after heavenly things. So we're not celibate just to preach and bring the sacraments. That's an awesome bonus that we have as celibate priests. Um, but the main reason is for its own sake, the victory over oneself, overcoming lust, raising our mind to meditate upon and follow after heavenly things. Let's wrap up all these quotes from the Church Fathers with one from St. John Chrysostom to show the gift of celibacy and even continence given to married people for a season, for a certain period of time. That's not just to like certain people with low levels of drive. St. John Chrysostom says, all, therefore, cannot receive it, because all do not wish. The palm is set before them. He who desires glory does not think of the labor. No one would conquer if all were afraid of danger. So in other words, what he's saying is, really, we can all 
uh, be chaste people, whether that's chastity in reference to marriage or it's in reference to celibacy. Really what he's trying to say here is every Christian actually could be celibate if they understood the glory um, that is involved in that. And then, you know, I think it's also important to note that this might sound a little bit confusing um, to a lot of you, but you have to realize that for most of church history, priests were seen as the most valiant soldiers of Christ. Nowadays, it's obviously very different. Um, people, people often point to church history and they say, well, look at St. Peter Damien. He was greatly admonishing those priests who, we'll put it this way, uh, were tempted to an alternative lifestyle. Yes, St. Peter Damien did write in the 12th century against those priests, but the very fact that traditionalists only point to one church father always shows this was a pretty rare problem, actually, in history. This is a really new problem in modernism that we have this. Yes, I'm very happy St. John or St. Peter Damien ripped on that in the 12th century, but why don't we have more quotes from the fathers? Well, because this is a new problem in the priesthood, to be perfectly honest, um, or at least at the gravity and the sheer frequency of men who would, again, be moving in that direction of alternative lifestyles. Because, again, priests for most of church history were seen as the toughest men, um, not the most perverted of society. I'm going to say that again. For most of church history, the guys who became priests were the toughest guys, not the most perverted of society. But that change due to modernism made many men with attractions to alternative lifestyles become priests Mainly, get this, I used to think it was demons and all this stuff. It just hit me about a year or two ago, really because of the ease of the lifestyle and the attraction of a lazy life. Uh, if the life of St. John Brebeuf was the life of current Jesuits, you know 99% of them would leave. But speaking of St. Ignatius, I now want to read you his meditation on the three kinds of humility. Just like military men today, Ignatius uses nouns and verbs with very few adverbs and adjectives. No exclamation marks. You can be sure if Ignatius was alive today, he wouldn't use emojis. But that doesn't mean he was a man without affections. They say that every mass he offered, he wept. He wept in contrition and love of God that God would choose a sinner like him to be a priest. Um, the affections and what you see in prayer and experience when he writes the spiritual exercises, all of those affections and emotions he does want you to have, um, not in an out-of-control out of way, but directed entirely to God, but notice as I read you from the three kinds of humility, he leaves that up to God. The holes in his description, a very sober, concrete description, the holes where you might find, well, where is the affection? Why is the affection lacking in there? As you listen to his description, you can take these very sober, concrete words to 15 minutes of prayer. And notice he will allow the affections and emotions to be part of it that will come from your heart, presumably from God through your heart, um, even as he reads, or even as he writes in a very cold-cut, sober style. In the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, we hear the three kinds of humility. This is number 165, 166, and 167 of the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. The first kind of humility. This is necessary for salvation. It consists in this, that as far as possible... I so subject and humble myself as to obey the law of God, our Lord, in all things, so that not even were I made Lord of all creation or to save my life here on earth, would I consent to violate a commandment, whether divine or human, that binds me under pain of mortal sin. The second kind of humility. This is more perfect than the first. 
I possess it if my attitude of mind is such that I neither desire nor am I inclined to have riches rather than poverty, to seek honor rather than dishonor, to desire a long life rather than a short life, provided only in either alternative, I would promote equally the service of God our Lord and the salvation of my soul. Besides this indifference, the second kind of humility supposes that not for all creation, nor to save my life, would I consent to commit a venial sin. The third kind of humility. This is the most perfect kind of humility. It consists in this. If we suppose the first and second kind attained, then whenever the praise and glory of the divine majesty would be equally served in order to imitate and be in reality more like Christ our Lord, I desire and choose poverty with Christ poor rather than riches, insults with Christ loaded with them rather than honors. I desire to be accounted as worthless and a fool for Christ rather than to be esteemed as wise and prudent in this world. So Christ was treated before me. So you bring these three to prayer. And instead of just deciding where you want to be, maybe find out first where you are. That not for all of the money and glory in the world would you commit a mortal sin is the first type of humility. The second would be not for all the money and glory in the world would you commit a venial sin. And the third kind of humility, and this is truly the outcome of prayer where Christ, where St. Ignatius wants us to walk with Christ in this pilgrimage through life, is to ultimately desire to be poor with Christ, to endure insults with Christ who has loaded with them for me. And then this final sentence is so moving, even, as I said, in such sober descriptions. I desire to be accounted as worthless and a fool for Christ, rather than to be esteemed as wise and prudent in this world. So Christ was treated before me. Please say an Our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis. Patris et Filii, et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.